This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. And today our subject is religious liberty. We're returning to this topic. Uh, a few months ago we had our first guest, Kelly Shackelford, who's sitting in studio with me, uh, President and CEO of the Liberty Institute, which is the largest organization focused on religious liberty in the country with us. And he introduced the uh, topic of religious liberty to us in anticipation of the Hobby Lobby decision, which now has come down. But not only has the Hobby Lobby decision come down, but we've also had an injunction related to another very closely related case involving Wheaton College. And as a matter of disclosure, I should say I serve on the board of Wheaton College, so I'm very, very aware of what this uh, case involves and uh, have a little bit of a vested interest in the in the process. And then uh, uh, via Skype, we have uh, Retired federal judge Roland von Brookhoven, who was uh, a former federal judge, uh, and uh, I've got these two legal experts to help us parse what happens in the courts uh, with regard to this issue, because for us average day, everyday folk, sometimes it's hard for us to understand uh, the hows and the whys of what's going on and, and what the rules of the game are. And so my job is to keep them uh, communicating at a level that uh, we all will understand. And so uh, you're going to be uh, sitting off the back of my, sh my ignorant shoulders so that I can, uh, so that I can help uh, parse and make sure that we're all talking the same language. So Kelly and Rollin, thank you for coming in and being a part of this with us. Uh, Kelly, we really appreciated you being with us last time and look forward to what you're going to offer to us in help today. And Rollin, it's great to have you um, with us as well. Rollin, uh, if you remember, did an earlier Table podcast as well when, we, uh, when the initial uh, same-sex marriage decision was issued, um, uh, what, a little over a year and a half ago, oh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and he walked us through those Supreme Court decisions and what was going on culturally. So I have got two very qualified people to speak with us. Well, gentlemen, let me dive in. Um, we got the Hobby Lobby decision, and I'm going to let the judge uh, explain what happened and and make whatever preliminary remarks he wants to make about how and why it happened, and then that'll set the table for the rest of our discussion. For those of you who don't remember, the Hobby Lobby case was a case of a of a of a corporation run by Christians that had a religious liberty objection to the um, mandate that required them to supply uh, birth control and other kinds of contraceptive. Uh, elements, among other things, uh, to their employees. And so they challenged their lack of status, if I can say it that way, in the courts, and, uh, and the decision uh, came down uh, over the summer. 
Judge, the floor is yours. What did the Supreme Court decide, and uh, how should we think about it? Well, well, first of all, I, I might just add that uh, the statement has been made recently that the current administration has done a great deal in terms of unifying the country, both left, center, and right, against many of its policies. Uh, and the Supreme Court is, is uh, no different. What is rather interesting is that uh, the unanimous decisions of the Supreme Court are significantly larger than those of divided decisions. We tend to focus on the divided decisions. And uh, certainly in, in the case of uh, uh, the Windsor case a little over a year ago with the same uh, sex uh, marriage issue and now uh, Hobby Lobby, uh, these tend to suck the wind out of uh, all of us. It, it strikes me that there are basically three things going on in the criticism of the court that don't get to the substance of uh, what is being decided. The first one is a pro-business claim. Uh, a lot of people claim that the uh, Roberts court is a has a pro-business bias and it decides in favor of business. The Hobby Lobby uh, case fits generally within that uh, argument. The second argument is that uh, there's a proclivity to take cautious steps. Uh, part of uh, Justice Roberts' interest is unifying the court and protecting its reputation. And so here, although in the briefs, both the First Amendment and the uh, Freedom of Religion Restoration Act were uh, dealt with, the court only dealt with the statutory issue under the Restoration uh, Act itself. And so we get into questions of statutory interpretation rather than the larger issues that are raised constitutionally. And the, the third thing is the hysteria which seems to greet these decisions, uh, particularly on the left. Um, Justice Ginsburg's uh, dissent in Holly, uh, Hobby Lobby is way off the chart. It's just really over the top. And so it takes a great deal of credibility away from uh, perhaps some of the arguments she might have otherwise made. In the case of the Wheaton College injunction, uh, there is a rather simple injunction uh, issued by the Supreme Court uh, against uh, Wheaton having to follow the mandate. And yet Justice Sotomayor uh, wrote a 17-page dissent to that injunction. And this is completely unheard of, it seems to me. And so you have this whipping up of, of, of the various sides and, and the hysteria that uh, accompanies those. So that kind of sets a, a bit of the background, it, it seems to me, on how we might look at uh, uh, Hobby Lobby. Okay, so let's let's take a look at. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, you've tempted me, and I'm resisting temptation to dive into more detail on some of what you're you're, you're saying here. Uh, let me let me do this much before we actually look at the decision, and that is um, what you're saying is is that in one sense 
all three of these reactions are are not appropriate ways to think about what we're getting ready to discuss. Am I am I hearing you right? Yeah, and, and I, I think that's exactly what I'm saying. But that's the way most people hear it when we read the newspapers. Okay. These, these are the basic criticisms, to a certain extent, against the legitimacy of the court. Okay. So and, and so I think that's important to carry that idea. So, so the corollary with that is, is that is that there really are important legal questions that need to be resolved here, as opposed to viewing this through kind of either a, a, a sociological lens or a lens that says, well, there's a strategy for how this is being done and, gone, and, and how the court is going about it. Am I reading that right as well in your remarks? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I think the interesting thing in the Hobby Lobby case are the amicus curiae briefs, mm-hmm. and and you get a lot out of the amicus curiae briefs that you don't necessarily get in either the decision or the basic briefs by the Green family or uh, the. Uh, the two main parties. Now I'm going to have to ask you to translate the technical language for folks because amicus curiae is going to mean absolutely schmatz to a lot of people. <laughs> so uh, can you help us with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about friend of courts. Okay. The, the, the briefs that are submitted on behalf of multiple parties that might be affected by an adverse decision, or they want to shape the direction of the decision. Okay, so this is these are briefs that come alongside the major briefs that basically give um, support to the particular case, one side or the other, of that's being argued. I, I think that's right. Okay. Um, all right. Let's turn our attention. Uh, let's turn our attention directly to the decision. Uh, well, let me ask it this way: since you said there's a real issue uh, wrapped up in this, um, in your view, what is the issue that the court was trying to decide in relationship to Hobby Lobby? And maybe that's the wrong way to ask it. What issues could be more than one? Uh, are, are, are is the is the court trying to balance as they deal with? Uh, as they dealt with the Hobby Lobby case and the claim that Hobby Lobby says that they should uh, receive some kind of an exemption for for this mandate, Rollin. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I guess there's several issues. When I first picked up Hobby Lobby uh, uh, this summer, I was struck by the fact that. Uh, uh, it seemed like the court had forgotten 200 years worth of uh, legal history or jurisprudence. The big issue immediately became, is Hobby Lobby uh, a person? And that was decided by the uh, trustees of Dartmouth case in 1819. And Which so, we all certainly remember. <laughs> well, obviously the court didn't remember. <laughs> Although uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg did talk a little bit about that. But uh, the fact that corporations have been regarded as persons uh, is nothing new, and it wasn't decided in the Hobby Lobby case. Now, the question is... Even though they're an artificial person, what rights can they uh, assert? And uh, to a large extent, uh, 
the courts have held over the years, uh, going back to the late 19th century, that they can, uh, for example, assert uh, rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So the fact that the court is asserting, uh, is allowing a corporation to act as a person asserting rights that individuals can assert is nothing particularly new. And, and yet, it seemed like both the majority and the dissent labored over that question uh, probably more than was necessary. And, and let me point out, okay. I was uh, I was in the front of the Supreme Court during the argument. Uh, a friend of mine argued the case. And it's shocking to listen to what the Solicitor General of the United States was arguing. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is not an exaggeration. His, his argument was that uh, once you decide to go into a for-profit business and incorporate, you are making the decision to waive your religious freedoms. Hmm. And, quote, you're now playing by the government's rules. That's what he said. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's – just think of what that would mean. I mean, mm-hmm. anybody who wants to feed their family and, and incorporate, uh, you know, to make money and, and have a business, uh, you know, they're – the place where they spend most of their waking hours, you know, those those rights are gone. It would, it, as as the judge said, it would have been an extreme departure from many many years of law. But that's what was being argued. And you know what's scary is, I mean, I don't know how many justices away, uh, you know, evidently one mm-hmm. from maybe that becoming the law. So that, you know, that was a very good first step in that 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 was rejected. But it's it, to me, even that that's being argued. Uh, I think is very disturbing. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Now, as we work our way through what this decision is, we're going to have to come to grips for people who are just lay people with certain phrases that are a part of the conversation in the discussion. One of those phrases is a closely held business. Um, what is a closely held business? And there seems to be a distinction that's being made between businesses, those that are closely held, and then I don't know what the alternative expression is. If it's not closely held, what is it, just a business? I mean, I, I don't know what the alternative is. Um, but what what what's the point of making that kind of a distinction? Because it seems like this decision applies to certain kinds of businesses, but not to other kinds of businesses. Is that? I just think they're being careful to say in this case we've got a closely held corporation. So it's the, the corporation is is more akin to the individuals who who run it and own it. You know, uh, it's not like a public you know uh, corporation. But I mean, in reality, I don't mm-hmm. think the arguments should change. I mean, I know of 
of uh, publicly traded corporations that Christians, it's a Christian company, and a majority own the stock. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, don't, I would think it would apply there. I just think the court was being very careful not to talk about things that weren't before it and says they're you know, in, if you're closely held, that's what this case is. This clearly applies. They didn't say it didn't apply to others. Okay. They just they just said we're not there yet, and that that's not the case before us. I think they're being careful. Okay. So so the point here is is that you have owners who are Christian of this corporation, and so and the, and the the case that they're making is we we have the right to apply our religious values to how our corporation is run. That's the that was the basic. Position. Is that right, Kelly? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, and okay, so the decision came down, and uh, and let's talk let, about. Let, let me, if I might, just okay. back up a minute. Okay. Support what Kelly said. The Supreme Court, or any court for that matter, is to decide only the issues that are before that court. And so when uh, when we get all wrapped up in this question of closed corporation versus a public corporation or individuals we're we're really not addressing a principle of of litigation that you're only litigating the basic question that has been presented in the lower courts and that has worked up through uh, the process i i think it would have been horrible for uh, justice alito to expand beyond which is basically what uh, Justice Ginsburg tried to do in in every instance expand beyond the basic issues that had been litigated before, and it came to the court. Well, this is precisely why we have you all here, so that you can help us explain the rules of the game and what's being asked and and required of people as we as we think through this. And, we're, we're, and I feel like we're slowly working mm-hmm. our way towards the discussion of the actual decision. But basically, what w- was decided here was that the uh, and Kelly, this is for you. The the the. Um, the Greens were uh, given the right to exercise uh, their uh, religious freedom in the in the context of how their corporation was being run. Is that fundamental? The fundamental decision. Yes, that was step one. Which again, the judge said shouldn't have had to be a step, but it it was forced because okay. they made this argument that you know, corporations don't have religious freedom. Um, once they got by that, they got to the the really the guts issue of the case, which is. Under the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act, mm-hmm. um, and again, he mentioned that earlier too, mm-hmm. the court didn't – this was not a constitutional decision. This was not a what the free exercise of religion says. This, there's a statute that's passed called the Religious Freedoms Restoration that's Act. That's right. They simply applied that and ask, you know, the questions. The way that, that uh, statute works is, is a test that you would normally apply in uh, when a fundamental constitutional rights are at stake, which is called the compelling interest test. Uh, and, and what they do in that case, in that test is they, they ask the first question, was a, a person's, or in this case, you know, the corporation's sincerely held religious beliefs burdened? Uh, and that's just a matter of, you really, only pe- people that can answer that question are the individual before the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said yes. I don't think anybody doubts that mm-hmm. they had a religious objection to uh, four of the 20 And the decisions drugs. actually alluded to the fact that they did bear this, that they recognized and, and acknowledged this burden. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's step one. So once you trigger that uh, and you show that the government is now burdening someone's religion, 
then the, the burden of proof shifts to the government to prove that it has a compelling governmental interest that is requiring this infringement and that what the government is doing to accomplish this compelling governmental interest is the least restrictive way to do it on the offended party. And that's something that they couldn't meet. In this mm -hmm. case, in particular, what the court said is, look, there are other accommodations. Uh, you look at what the nonprofits have been offered. They've been offered a specific accommodation. That wasn't offered uh, to the for-profit. So that alone shows this was not the least restrictive way. Therefore, this is unconstitutional. So they, they went to that least restrictive means and said, uh, you don't meet the, the burden under the test. Uh, you can't prove that this is the least restrictive way to burden Hobby Lobby and similar uh, groups. And so uh, under the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act, you violate that act, and therefore you know, we're going to enjoin you from you know, all these heavy penalties, which they would have punished Hobby Lobby with. Hobby Lobby said they would have gone out of business. Yeah, uh, I mean, these penalties are so large that they're millions of dollars uh, it, because so many people are involved. Um, Okay. I, I think one one thing that I might add to okay. what Kelly just said is is the the court assumed that mandating all of these uh, contraceptive methods was a compelling interest of the government. I'm not ready to buy that assumption, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure why they made that assumption. As the brief from Westminster Theological Seminary said, really, uh, pregnancy is not a disease, and uh, providing all of these do not promote the health of women, and whether the statistics were there to support the idea that women were prevented from engaging in the workplace is simply were not articulated in this case. But it does strike me that uh, Alito, for whatever reason, simply assumed the compelling interest, and I see nothing in the record, either in the decision or any of the briefs, that would suggest that providing all 21 of these uh, contraceptives would uh, promote a compelling interest of the government. That's a that's an interesting observation, and and you're again working with something that I'm going to take a moment to explain to the lay folks, and that is that when a case is in front of someone, it's the burden of the lawyers on each side to present the facts of the case to the court through their briefs, uh, and 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 on that, and it's on the basis of those briefs and what gets presented to the court in relationship to the law that the court case gets decided. I mean, I'm, I know this is basic legal 101, but I think for some people who don't understand how courts work, it isn't that I can think of of any argument I want. In, in it's got to be formally presented to the court. Is that right, Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, formally presented to the lower court. Lower court. To lower courts. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the trial and, court or the appellate court, it does. Didn't even get to the Supreme Court. Okay, and fair let enough. me let me lay out something because I think this is an important issue for people to understand. Uh, sort of before we go into okay. Wheaton and everything yeah. else, um, we talked about accommodation. Right. The reality is that if the government really, really thinks it's important to provide these particular four drugs that many believers find are abortion-causing drugs. Right. Right. If the government really thought that that was something crucial or compelling, it could simply provide it to people. Yes. 
And instead, what it is doing, and it's going out of its way to do this, is it's trying to instead of that easy solution. If they really, if that was the issue they really cared about, mm-hmm. that that would be solved in no time. They just say we'll provide these. Mm-hmm. Instead, what they're doing is they're trying to force all religious entities to to be the ones who trigger this. Yes, yeah. and and so ultimately, what is really going on here is the government is trying to get a precedent that they can force religious entities to violate their conscience, and it's totally unnecessary. Here's another, here's another question that I have, and this, this, in thinking about this as a layperson looking at, at, at what's going on, and that is when you sign on to an accommodation, you actually are acknowledging the government's right to, to make you uh, sign on to that accommodation. That means that's something that they can potentially take back down the road, isn't, isn't it? Doesn't it mean we're showing you grace and we're being kind by giving you this accommodation? If you sign on, you're buying into your recognition that 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 you are compelled to respond to us on this issue. It seems to me that's another element of this conversation. Am I right about that? Oh, I think so. I think yeah. there's a lot of uh, different. You know, one of the things about accommodations is. Uh, as with any sincerely held religious belief, it's really not up to the government or judges to decide what they think is a rational religious objection. Mm-hmm. Their job is simply to decide, is it sincere? Mm-hmm. So if I'm a prisoner and all of a sudden I feel like I've become a member of the, the church of the filet mignon, <laughs> you know, that, that's not going to go. <laughs> right, uh, right. But, but they really aren't, shouldn't be in the business of saying, well, I don't think that your objection to this makes a lot of sense to me, right. that's really not an inquiry that judges should be involved in. And so really, if, if people and churches and entities come forward and say, this violates our faith and our conscience, that really should be uh, all that matters when it comes to whether the accommodation really you know, actually avoids violating their religious uh, uh, beliefs and, and their rights. Okay, I'm kind of ticking off the issues that we're working through here that are involved in this singular. Ca- this is one case, but it's got lots of elements to it. We've al- we've already ticked off the the idea that corporations can operate and have rights like persons. Uh, we've already uh, ticked off the idea that accommodation, in one way or another, is a way of acknowledging, or or it could be read as acknowledging the government's right to have authority in this kind of an area, that's, that's a certain kind of impingement. We've already uh, ticked off the fact that, that w- the way this is being done is forcing the, um, the business, and eventually we're going to be talking about schools, to trigger the process, and it's their insurer who ends up covering, uh, covering what's being asked for. So that's another way being involved. And it seems to me that the fourth issue is the question, the actual legal, formal, narrow legal question, if I can say it that way, of figuring out the least restrictive way to make all this work. And now my question is, having ticked off those four, am I missing anything? No, I think those are you know the big issues, and and I think the last one you said there's an obvious answer, mm-hmm. and that to me that's what sort of hangs over all of this. Yeah, is there a least restrictive means? Yes, the government provides them. Yeah, if it's so important to the government, they can provide them. It's not a problem, uh, and so and so that's going to be the problem I think with all of these uh, legal actions in the future is the court didn't say in Hobby Lobby that. It's this one type of accommodation that they just said, look, that's an example that there are accommodations. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the ultimate accommodation is 
it, do you have to force religious groups to be put to this Hobson's choice of of my faith or you know government penalties? Mm-hmm. You don't even have to have them in that situation. Mm-hmm. You, you don't need to go through the religious groups. You, the government, can just provide them yourself. But that's not what they're trying to do. And so they're going to all. I mean, until that is switched. There will be religious objections, and and religious groups are going to be fighting this uh, until the very end. And they're fighting it for a variety of reasons. They're fighting they're fighting it at the level of the protection of the individual rights that are involved, both at the individual and corporate levels, uh, particularly the the more corporate levels involving schools and businesses. They're they're fighting it because they're being asked to trigger something that they're actually underwriting. Uh, by by there being their own insurance organization uh, that's dealing with and, and by signing on to the accommodation they feel like they're signing on to the at least the potential of giving away a right that the Constitution recognizes that they possess and I, I think it's important that those things be clear because I think in in the way this has been covered uh, my sense is is that almost none of those issues are raised to any public awareness at all as to why it is people are concerned let me raise one one other issue before we uh, press on here, and it's this. Um, sometimes in listening to the response to this, you get the feeling that what is being said about the people who are trying to defend and stand up for religious liberty is, well, you just don't want people to have access to these drugs. You know, that, that really, the, uh, deep down, what you are saying is you disagree with abortion, you disagree with, it may be birth control, depending on where you are on the religious spectrum, and, and so you just don't want this to happen. So you're putting up every possible obstacle in the world uh, to keep that from happening and to uh, distance your involvement from it. I think the distance the involvement from it part is probably true. But I think it, it's unfair to suggest, I think, that the position of people who are defending religious liberty in this case are, are arguing, we don't want people to have access to these, um, these, this type of care if they choose uh, to want to exercise it. No, no one that I'm aware of is saying that. Am, am I? No, that's right. I think the access argument is a false argument. It's, 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 a, uh, it's a media uh, term to, to, for people who don't think or understand the case. It's again, nothing about Hobby Lobby saying we don't want to provide this is saying that they can't have access to it anywhere they want. Right. Uh, I mean, it's like saying you know if if you don't provide it, there's no access. I mean, they could get it you know all kinds of places, and it could be set up to be provided for in all kinds of places. Uh, exactly. The government could provide that easily. There's a lot of places, clinics, and places that provide that anyway. Uh, but the idea that, that somehow women don't have ac- access to birth control if their employer doesn't give it to them is a farce. And so that's part of the reason, Judge, why I take it you said earlier that some of the reaction to this represents a form of hysteria, which is a very vivid uh, description of it, um, because because it is an overreaction to actually what's being decided in the case. Is that is fair? Rollin? I think that is fair. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for part two. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Love well.